Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast in our Getting to Know series. This time around, get to talk with a friend of mine, someone that I was fortunate to work for on two occasions in the Indy Racing League, 1999 and again in 2001, Leanne Patterson. She and her former husband, Larry Nash, running programs there that, yes, silly enough to have me involved on the engineering side, but truly came to appreciate Leanne being one of very few women in IndyCar racing at the time. Her skills varied from marketing, promotions, sales, sponsorship, you name it. You're going to learn a lot more about her while we are spending a lot of time recognizing the women involved in motor racing. I don't know if I've heard her name spoken enough, so that's why I said, hey, let's sit down and capture a podcast. So we did a little over an hour, find out that she's done so many things, talking about running a racing series to her debut, her very first Indy 500 in 1996. Then the next major affiliation was with Sam Schmidt, young upstart driver that she knew from that series she used to run. Sam, in the formative days of his IndyCar career, get into the formation of Sam Schmidt Motorsports in 2001 after Sam's accident. That team now known as Air McLaren SP, celebrating a fairly significant anniversary here in 2021. We start to wind down just a little bit, talking about the women who have inspired Leanne, Anita Milliken being one of them. Leanne told me about her, I was just completely ignorant, a few years ago. Just really impressive to hear about how one person can inspire another. So much of that is happening today with folks who haven't been heavily represented in a variety of motor racing formats, and yet here we learn once more, seeing it and being it is a real thing. Then we close on Leanne's most recent involvement that is with an Indy Autonomous Challenge program. So Leanne's just fascinating. Cannot overstate and how big of an impact she had on my life. Working for her, great, great portion of my life. So hope you come to appreciate Leanne and maybe get to know one of the really important people on pit lane that maybe hasn't had enough of a spotlight cast on her before. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. Leanne, we are in a place today, crazily enough, where you and I get to speak into microphones, speak with wow. one another, spin some yarns, and some of these things might even be true uh, that be. we're about to get to. You've always been one of my favorite people, having a, uh, a good fortune to spend uh, multiple years working with you and uh, Larry Nash back in the day in the good old Earl, the Indy Racing League. And I figured, <laughs> you know, all that you've done, all that you are doing today, so many cool things not enough people know about you. So as an idiot with a podcast that some people listen to, I said, well, let's try and solve that problem a little bit, at least to whatever capabilities that I can. So why don't we start out with the basics of where were you born? Who are your people? I've met your people, but uh, tell folks where you come from. Tell us about your parents and your upbringing and find out where cars and motor racing entered into your world as well. I hail from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, born and raised there, one of the natives. And uh, in the South, I say, who are your people? Um, and, and that would be the Merriweathers and the Montgomerys and the Tutwilers. Um, so very, very Southern and uh, happy to be back in my Southern roots, even though I did spend 20 years in Indy. And um, I went to Auburn University and I actually now live down here in Auburn. So War Eagle. Um, and uh, long story short, I started this whole path in rock and roll radio. That's usually my uh, one hail answer when um, people <laughs> ask, how did I get down this path? So 
uh, rock and roll radio it was. It was a great station named 96 Rock, which is legendary in Atlanta as well. And um, it was a lot of fun. I, um, I actually grew up in the Southern Bicycle League with my folks. We did a lot of bicycle riding, like riding to Savannah or riding to the top of the Blue Ridge Parkway. So serious riding. <clears throat> and that's where I got my event chops cut. And um, between that and going to 96 Rock, I fell in love with the promotions department there. Because, you know, you can make somebody's weekend something to look forward to. Give them fabulous prizes or win tickets or you can get people together to do something great. You know, like build a memorial for the Vietnam vets. So by the time I got bicycles and radio put together, that resulted in an invitation to go to Sonoma Raceway, then Sears Point. Um, and become the promotions director. And I had never seen a race before. I didn't grow up in motor- <laughs> I didn't grow up in motorsports. I mean, it could I always say it could have been pink poodle farming and I would have gone. because uh, it was, you know, I was single, it was tw- 25, it was California. And so, you know, I took off to the the great uh, left coast and uh, and experienced motorsports for the very first time. And what is it about <clears throat> motor racing that, tickled your interest because the promotion side which we'll get to the marketing the the pr Mm -hmm. the sales the sponsorship pursuits all the things that you did in indycar and other series before indycar you didn't necessarily have to continue down that path uh after earning Mm -hmm. the job at what we'll always call sears point sears point yeah but you chose to stay in this environment what did you find there that piqued your interest with all the, the cars and silliness? I think it was when Bill Cooper gave me a hot lap around Sears Point. <laughs> I had never been in a, a hot lap situation, and he was uh, uh, he was an instructor at the Bondurant School. The great Bondurant School was there, and we were chasing a guy and coming out of the S's and out of turn 10, and we were I, I couldn't see the bumper of the guy in front of me, and we're heading into that hairpin of 11, and I'm thinking, you know, break, 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 break. And he doesn't. And in, they immediately broke at the same time. And we went through 11. I'm like, how did you know when he was going to break or why didn't he? he? goes, we're racing. Why would we hit the brakes? <laughs> I'm like, okay. And, you know, after doing those hot laps and then getting to spend some time in the seat, I mean, we all know that racing is a drug of which there is no cure. Um, so I got to go through the Bondurant School um, and do the four-day course. That was incredible. So the Formula Fords, and and I really loved that. And then at the end of the day, it was the people. Um, you know, I, I'm somewhat of a statistical anomaly in the fact that I I love being around guys. I, have a, I relate to them more, and I love the engineering. I grew up with a bunch of engineers. And so it was interesting to me, and they have a lot of passion in racing. I think racers have more passion in their little pinky than most people experience in their lifetime. You know, just we just live life on a much larger level. And I met some women at the track that, you know, didn't take any crap from anybody. And they were some of the first gals to ever do what they did in the sport. And I just, those, those were the girls that I related to. Those became my sorority sisters and the mentors that I had. And I just related to those gals. And I just, I really fell in love with the people. And, you know, my parents were like, oh, racetrack, oh. But I, I, you know, I told them, I said, you know, mom, dad, anytime you work with people that are at the pinnacle of what they do, 
they are wicked smart people, and they're good people, and they're kind, and they're talented, and that's that's what I found at Sears Point. I, you know. So where, Leanne, did the decision to progress beyond what you were doing at Sears Point come into play? Because you, I'd say not too long after, based on my recollection, you are involved with racing cars, racing teams, um, applying a lot of the knowledge and experience that you had in those realms, very different from track-based promotions. That's an epicenter for people Mm -hmm. to come in and enjoy whatever things that you might help make happen. Then you decide to shift gears and join the proverbial circus (laughs) and go on the road. And tell me about that, because that's another life-changing decision. Once you say, okay, my new home is going to be the Motel 6 and the Howard Johnsons and the whatever for half a year, three quarters of a year, that's going to be the basis of my life. That's another really big shift you have to opt into. No one can force you. Mm Mm-mm. I took a half step. Um, First off, at Sears Point, we did 48 promoted events a year. And we ran everything. NHRA, Trans Am, NASCAR, um, you know, the good guys, AMA. I even took a bicycle event to Sears Point. (laughs) And so, you're doing a lot of weekends, right? In fact, my first job there was actually to introduce NASCAR Winston Cup to the San Francisco Bay Area. (laughs) I had to to give... uh, I had to give cue cards to the radio disc jockeys in San Francisco that said, you know, moonshine is no longer appropriate question and uh, milk is a two-syllable word. So, <laughs> you know, they said those kind of things. And, and, and so I took a half step because I, when I left Sears Point, went back to Atlanta for just a bit, I suddenly got asked to do the pre-race ceremonies at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And, and I really just wanted to find a path back in. And as fortune would have it, Oddly enough, the first thing I actually did at Sears Point was to help the movie crew of Dwarf Goes Auto Racing. No, I, was, no. I was the liaison for the for the track. That was just one of the things I was doing. This is Tim Conway, you know, on his knees, right? And uh, the Budweiser people paid for it because they wanted the commercial footage. So, so it's Dwarf Goes Auto Racing and all the stunts of you know trapping somebody in the Porta Johns, you know, leaning up against the fence, and you know all those kind of fun things. And uh, I just really enjoyed that uh, portion of the program. But the guy who was the executive producer, I happened to run into at Atlanta Motor Speedway one day. And he said, have I got the job for you? And he introduced me to a guy named Don Landy, who hired me to become Carol Shelby's uh, series director for the Dodge Shelby Pro Series. Wow. So, so I actually went from racetrack, which is, you know, one one corner of the of the threesome that we have you have track sanctioning bodies and teams and i went to the sanctioning body side so i became the series director for carol (laughs) and i also have to mention the uh dwarf goes auto racing for those who don't know look it up you might find it on youtube or whatever it's old timey comedy very much a precursor to i don't want to say jackass and some of those kinds of things but just Anyways, I, it's funny you mentioned that because I guess yeah. while it was being filmed, they were doing something in Turn 11. I was working at Fife Ridge Racing, which is one of the shops at Sears Point. Somebody, mm-hmm. 
I don't know why they chose our shop. I came up to our shop, spotted me and said, Hey, uh, we need an extra or someone to be in a scene we're about to shoot. Can you come down for a couple minutes? <laughs> and so I, I asked my boss, Bob Lesnet and like, Hey, uh, they can, can I? And he said, no, you got work to do. And I'm like, I mean, so. Of all, of all the obscure things I've done in my career, that could be the peak, Leanne, but I was denied being in Dwarf Goes Auto Racing. Oh, my God. I didn't get a cameo either, but <laughs> I was staying in the hotel because I hadn't moved to California yet. I, I went about three weeks in front of the race and kind of interviewed during the first race, right? And I was staying with the film crew. And so we got to watch the dailies with Tim Conway and all the guys every day. So, um, I, again, what a hoot. It was like watching Mr. Howiggins, you know, drive a race car kind of thing. It was it was fun. So you move into this series director role with the uh, the the Shelby canned hams, as we That's somewhat it. lovingly called them. <laughs> a series not well remembered by time. No, but there was some serious talent that came out of that, or used it as one of the many ladders. Mamo Gidley probably one of the, the biggest names to have competed there and gone on to bigger things, There's Scott several. Harrington, you know, again, there, yes, definitely several. So while not as popular as some of the other kind of training formula classes of the 1990s, it did have uh, a little bit of weight and influence. Tell me about that transition though, because it's managing, it is people, it is all kinds of things. I'm guessing it played into some of your skills, but I'm also guessing you had to develop on the fly a number of other new ones. You know, when somebody says, do you want to be a series director and you're, let's see, I was, oh no, 28 at the time, clearly not qualified for the job, right? Because I've just been a promotions director to track. But, you know, you say yes and you gear up and you and you go after it. And uh that's really what he did. Obviously, the the PR, the marketing side was there. But, you know, when you're running a series, um, you're there kind of taking care of everybody in the paddock. And I seem to adapt pretty well to the racing way of life, to the nuances of the track. Um, you, I don't know if you remember Rhea at Sears Point. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> who, who, anyone who ever was at Sears Point would know Rhea. With no Rhea. And, you know, the first day of my interview, I walked in in, you know, heels and, you know, cute pants and all this kind of stuff. And she thought, oh, Lord, you know, help us. What's walking in here? But she was uh, at the bar in Sonoma one day and she said, I gotta give you props. You fit right in and you got it. And I thought, you know, from Rhea, I'm going to take that as a badge of honor and roll with it. And so I seemed to seem to be able to, you know, kind of fit in because I understood it. I understood the the racing. I understood the the need to take care of people and be fair. There was a lady out at Sears Point that used to run the uh, drag races, Georgia Seipel. And Georgia, um, you know, was the first female that was running NHRA drag races. And everybody would show up to her race because she ran a fair race. Wow. And she knew how to take care of her competitors. And, you know, I, I ask a lot of questions. And I, I, Georgia, talk to me. How, you know, what's good here? What's How do you take care of your competitors? And so Georgia was one of those people that was fantastic in helping me understand about what it really meant to, to run a race and, and be fair. And then the other one was Vicki O'Connor. Oh, the awesome and amazing the Vicki awesome O'Connor. I'm not worthy to carry her shorts. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, she See? ran the promotions promotions company. That's it. That would be all the fond memories many of us have of Formula Atlantic and the various names that it, it evolved through over the years. She was a well, she was the central figure the? to making that happen. Um, yeah, wow. Anytime yeah. someone mentions Vicky's name, I just smile. I think most people do as well. Exactly. And as far as I know, she she owned, operated, managed, and and championed the longest running and greatest support series in motorsport history. And the day she left it was pretty much the day it died. Yeah. Uh, you know, she was just phenomenal. So when I got the job with Carol, um, I had been introduced to her. And so we went and sat and had a glass of wine. And we talked about it and we talked a lot about, you know, series and some of the things. And she gave me a few tidbits, but the very end, she'll say, well, we'll see if you survive the first year. <laughs> it's like, okay. So you just gear up and go and you do what you can and you, and you do it with a lot of enthusiasm and passion. And, and I learned a lot about SCCA and a lot of the nicknames for SCCA. At the same time, SCCA did a great job in bringing support series along and giving guys a place to actually do wheel-to-wheel combat, get some actual racing skills. You know, Buddy Rice came out of this one as well. Sam Schmidt came out of this one as well. Um, you know, those guys really cut their teeth on it, and it was a great stepping stone into the Atlantics. And, you know, SUC provides that, but it was interesting. And we ran as a, a, a support series to both Trans Am, CART, and NASCAR. And that was really odd because nobody expected a Shelby Can-Am car to be running at the ovals with Humpy Wheeler. <laughs> and Humpy thought these cars were fantastic. But he didn't know why we couldn't put, you know, a cockpit over the guys and, and put a number on this item. Like, because then it would be a stock car. Wow. <laughs> but we did. We ran at Charlotte and we, we ran with NASCAR at Watkins Glen. In fact, uh, the day we were up there, pouring down rain. Goodyear came out with the first set of rain tires, and Dale Earnhardt Sr. was their test guy. And, you know, they had to wait for the right moment, right? Dale went out for a couple of laps and came back and basically said, no way in hell, <laughs> not doing this. And our Shelby Can-Am guys out, we had 43 cars on track. They went flying into turn one with rooster tails so big that you couldn't even see the cars, and they put on a show like no other, and the fans went wild. Not technically oriented. I'm not a, you know, I don't wrench on these cars. And at the end of that uh, particular run, we had a, a guy that had cheated with shims on a pair of shocks. He'd done something to them. And of course, shocks back then was still really new mojo. Everybody was still figuring that out. And, um, and I literally, NASCAR was running and I became good friends with Bill Elliott. Of course, we're both the Georgia folks. So we actually understand each other. Yeah. And <laughs> I get the accent. And uh, so I actually marched myself right up to NASCAR because I suddenly had to make a technical ruling on a shim and I didn't even know what a shim was. So I went up and said, Bill, I need your help. This is what I got going on. We went down to the Billstein shot guy and we thought it through and decided performance advantage, no, blah, blah, blah. I got super educated and went back to my paddock area as if I knew things and, you know, made a ruling. So <laughs> Watkins Glen, running with those guys, it, it was all really good. And it made it interesting for the fans, too, certainly for the for the guys who were actually trying to make a name for themselves. Not to overstate the obvious here, but you've cited two women running racing series that you knew or had an influence on you, lent some insight or encouragement. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, you know, we're talking 1990s, this is certainly exception to the rule. 
Oh yeah. Your personality is one that I've always appreciated because there is never a doubt about your heritage and lineage and growing up in a gentlemanly and gentle womanly, womanly environment. You that's something you've always taken great pride in and never wanted to lose even for a split second. And you also, pardon my French, take zero shit from anybody. And so the duality of you is awesome because folks will get nothing but the kindest, most gracious use of words and presentation and tone. And you'll drop the hammer at the same time. And folks will be a little bit confused you know i think you only had to do it to me once maybe twice but um <laughs> where you just sit there in the state of confusion saying i think i was just told off like seriously told off in the happiest why am i smiling she just <laughs> reamed me for whatever it was and yet i'm so seemingly happy what is wrong here and it's some kind of ninja thing that you have going on about your upbringing the, the class and whatnot, the Southern charm, but also you do not bow down, take any steps back from anybody. And I think that's one of the reasons why in this dumb male dominated sport decades and decades ago, you earned a really strong reputation because you wouldn't take any nonsense from anybody. Tell me about that because that's, it's, unique to you and it seems to have served you for quite some time how did you use or employ that as you're running a series for the first time and, and mapping out maybe bigger things that would come for you i have to say i'm completely oblivious to that um <laughs> i just had a job to do um you know i was expected to do a job i was expected to make some decisions and you make the decisions in the fairest way you can possibly make them. And occasionally that means telling somebody that, you know, no, I'm not going to do that because that's not fair. Um, so, you know, whether I was, you know, driving the tiger by his tail, because we Southern girls know how to do that. Um, but I I just, I'm kind of oblivious to the fact that I could, you know, really take, take charge of that. I just kind of got in and got the job done. Uh, because that's what I was expected to do. So I, I don't think there was any big plan on my part there, Marshall. <laughs> just being who you are. Hey, if the just, formula just works, go with it. Um, you know, again, I, 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 I'm comfortable in that environment. There was no reason to be shy about it. Comfortable around the guys. The guys have always been, look, we're all part of the Me Too generation, truly. And we've all got experiences. But I also know there were a lot of guys that were great and supportive and, you know, respected the fact that that was my job at the time. And, you know, as long as you backed it up with sound reasoning and you, you know, presented it uh, in some seemingly reasonable presentation mode without blessing anybody out at the top of your lungs, it usually went over pretty well, I, I think. Evidently, it did. So It did. It did. Getting yelled at by you. One of the delights. <laughs> so let's talk about moving on from the Shelby, the uh, beautiful canned ham series mm -hmm. to what was next for you? Because I know around this time we have the uh, coming formation of the Indy Racing League. You mentioned 
some of the names of the drivers that came through the, uh, the Can-Am series, you would certainly have more than one interaction with a certain Sam Schmidt uh, in the mm-hmm. years to come. But tell me about things starting to move forward for you career-wise, Leanne, mid-90s and starting to move into this IRL era, because this is where uh, I get to know you. Yeah. Um, working for Carol was great. Um, there were some things going on with that particular series that were going to make it very difficult for it to move forward that were not Carol's doing. Um, and so I, I frankly got an offer um, to, well, get married. And I decided to take that offer because it was good. And uh, so I moved to Indianapolis and, uh, you know, got married to a guy named Larry Nash, who was one of the special vehicle reps and still to this day, one of the most beautiful car builders on the planet. Um, and so we did that. And we were running the Shelby Can-Am series. That was in 94, 95 when I went up there and did that. And then, of course, the IRL started in 1996. And we took that opportunity to go back because Larry had started with uh, Emerson Fittipaldi and Gary Bettenhausen. In fact, you know you're in racing when Gary B. is the best man at your wedding. Huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody in Georgia knew who he was except one couple. And they came up and said, is that the Gary Bettenhausen? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's that's who he is. Wow, you really are in the sport. So, um so in 1996, um, which is a hoot, Gene Harrington, Scott's dad, had found a car in the bottom of uh, Dale Coyne's basement. And it showed up, um, not kidding, and it showed up three three weeks in front of the very first day of opening day in 1996. And it was a 1992 Lola. And it didn't look like a car. The trailer door came in at, at midnight, lowered, and all I saw was boxes. I didn't see a car. I saw boxes. And we had uh, worked with our Shelby Can-Am crew, and we came up with a schedule, and we went through it. And we built a beautiful 1992 Lola uh, in a matter of about uh, 21 days, plus some pit equipment. And interestingly enough, Larry had to actually go and dig parts out of John Menard's basement to find a gearbox. And he fabricated a gearbox out of a 92, 93, 94 gearbox and made it work. Wow. And Scott had uh, had to pass a rookie test, and we get to uh, Indy. We show up about, I think it was a day after opening day, uh, because we needed to be ready to go when we got there. And so we put Scott out on the track, and he does a nice job getting through rookie test. But the first time he's released um, to go, he he basically crashed and won. And that was our car. That was the only car, right? <laughs> But in the course of this, we managed to um, put together some sponsorship of Gold Eagle Sponsorship. And it was enough money that we could actually go and start leasing an arrangement. But we weren't going to be able to lease one uh, until bump day. That's just how it was going to roll. Everybody was going to qualify if a backup was available. You know the drill. And we ended up with Richie Hearn's backup. And it was on bump day. And Scott suddenly had to go faster than he had ever been before. And we're standing on the pit road waiting at about noon for Della Pena to show up. He and Gene finished the deal. And we put Scott in. And Richie Hearn is short. And Scott isn't. And so he went a couple of laps. He wasn't comfortable. We had to take the seat back. Long story short, he turned a lap at about 2.17. And we knew that the speeds would drop. I mean, the temperature would drop. Speeds would go up at the end. And the line was pretty long to get into the tech line. So we threw him in the tech line at 2, 3 o'clock, and as everybody's going down and it's getting closer to the time, it took us about two hours to get through the line. 
It's now after five o'clock. We're on the tech box. A side pod's a little bit low. <laughs> it's kind of quiet. And so Larry's trying to, to distract the official while the guys are raising the side pod just a bit. And some fan screams out, hey, don't drop that. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. I'm standing next to Dr. Jerry Punch. I said, well, that must be the fan that gave us a check to fund Scott's effort. He goes, what? And I had to check in my pocket. And next thing you know, Dr. Jerry Punch is trying to cover up account numbers and say, this is a fan who's given Scott money. Can he make it? Can he do it? Though the drama, right? Wow. And uh, with about 30 minutes to go in the day before the gun went off, the person in front of us crashed. And it was a big hit and it was messy. So then you're waiting for the cleanup with 10 minutes left to go. Scott gets to go. And I think his last lap had two wheels in the grass. He let everything go on that line. He was balls to the walls. He had to go faster than he'd ever gone before. And he ended up qualifying at 220. And then I think Tice Carlson was behind us. Forgive me if I got that quite wrong, but they got to go. They got a chance to go. And in his, his run, the first lap was good enough to bump us out. The second lap was good enough to bump us out. And the third was not. And that's how we made our first race. Wow. And so we were on row 33, and we got to be part of Robin Miller's last row party. And that, that was good. Row 11, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah. And, and end of the road. Uh, the end long the walk road. to grid, as I call it. But how amazing, though, uh, having to go through those wars to get in for your first and first having done that the following year, uh, gone through the wars to get in. Mm -hmm. I can just say from personal experience, it absolutely frames everything about that event for you every year that you return. Uh, I don't want to say I feel bad for anybody who wins or has an amazing debut. Obviously I'm jealous of those folks, but, uh, I think if you show up and you have, fairly decent success at Indy first go round. I just wonder uh, if you're able, able to properly appreciate the, I changed my underwear four times today <laughs> because I peed so much, you know, I mean, that's a, the tension. Wow. It was so intense. It, it was the full gambit of the emotion in such a short span. In fact, the lady that was assigned to shoot the man on the bubble, you know, the photographers have their, you know, the pole sitter, the bubble guy, and the, and the guy that gets bumped, right? Uh, she shot the picture of my hands, and I was clinging them fisted together so tightly that they were white, completely white. And I still have that picture. Um, that it, it was an intense day. At the same time, we made it. And, uh, and here's what's cool. When we started the race, I mean, literally, we made it. And Larry turned to me and said, uh, now we got to go get the equipment to run the race. And our crew was the Shelby Can-Am crew who had never been over the wall. And we decided that they had earned the right to do that. And so at four o'clock in the race morning, they're practicing their first ever pit stops back in the garage. And we let them go over the wall. And the very first one was horrible. And Scott stalled it. And I'm sitting on the pit stand. And do you know what it sounds like when 50,000 people from behind you in front of you all go, oh, together? (laughs) (laughs) Because they're with us, right? I mean, Scott was one of the opening... uh, deals from abc he was poster child for hungry america because he said i sold my car to make it my power bills off right and uh 50 000 people went, Ugh. but when we nailed it the first time we zip 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 and gone and the guys went to their feet 
so did everybody behind us. And that that was incredible. Wow. That was incredible. So, Leanne, you and Larry, the, uh, the LP racing team, mm-hmm. LP performance and whatnot, this, uh, this small outfit continues to build and grow. Guy who has become fairly well-known today as a team owner. Yeah. Uh, a lot of folks who are newer fans might not appreciate that young Samuel Schmidt was a pretty darn good race car driver, and he, making his IndyCar debut, certainly someone who he seemed to love everything about it, definitely had, I think, some of the same mindset and approach of you from the promotion side, the marketing side. I mean, Sam wasn't just the traditional... I'm a skilled driver and that's all I do. He was Mm-mm. very Show integrated me. on the business side too. Tell me about this development for you uh, and the team because there's something unique there as well. I um, we I met Marv uh, when Sam was running two-liter. Remember the very first IRL race had a two-liter season opener in Orlando and Sam won that race. Yeah, Marv, Sam's dad. And Marv, Sam's dad, and Sam had won that race. And to be honest with you, I sauntered over talking to Marv. I said, you know, when, when he's ready to go to IndyCar, we, we can do that for you. We can get you there. And uh, in 1997, Sam had made the jump, and he was with a team that uh, had specialized in, um, well, jet car drag racing. Turning left was a thing that they didn't quite know how to do. And, <laughs> and Marv called us up on the phone and for a week and said, please, please come down here. But, you know, stepping into somebody's effort is, is something you just, you know, you just don't do. And we wanted to be respectful. At the same time, when we got down there and they figured out who Larry was and all that kind of stuff, they were like, oh, come on in. And so that's where we kind of met Sam. And then when we went to Texas, we helped out there too. And after that, Sam actually just brought us the effort. And we had 14 days to build his effort. 14 days to build the car, the crew uniforms, the look, everything. And we went to New Hampshire I think, was our first race. And we didn't have an 18-wheeler, but we did have 18 wheels because we had three rider trucks. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, <laughs> and we, we made it, and we made it to the race, and, and the car looked every bit the show car. In fact, we were up doing media day in the media center, and a lot of people had seen Sam's car, but Sam hadn't seen it. And they all came in and said, man, is that your show car? Are you going to actually race that? And Sam hadn't seen it yet. He hadn't seen the scallops that we'd put on the nose to pay homage to, you know, the old champ car days. He hadn't seen a lot of that stuff. I mean, it was number 99 because of the Behringer special, which relates back to Tony Bettenhausen's dad. I mean, Gary Bettenhausen's dad, Tony. I mean, we had a lot of history in it. In fact, we even named it special because, again, that's what they used to call the cars. And, um, and so that's how we started with Sam and had a great run with him in 98 as well. In fact, we, uh, I think you were on the team that was the splitting the front row with uh, Greg Ray. Yeah. Y'all were the first best story of a small team. We were the second because <laughs> we were outside row three. And we had spent, uh, I think we had $1.5 million that year. We had one car, maybe an engine and a half. And uh, the backup car, uh, Delara, we had convinced Delara that if we built a backup car, that anybody in the small team needed it could use it as long as they paid for it first. But we carried it, and it was in our colors. And everybody was kind of, all the small teams were okay with that. But that was our backup car. We, we didn't even own it. Um, and, and so we, we just kind of made it happen. And you could do that. And Sam, 
Sam and I got along really well on the marketing side. Do you remember his lamb chop sideburns? Oh, like how could we forget? <laughs> and his spy sunglasses. Yes, oh. he was uh, He was all tuned up. He was. And, and we went to Vegas because that's where he was living. And we got the Sahara Casino on. And, you know, we had a lot of fun doing a lot of those kind of fun things because he was a personality. He was also, um, you know, he has a master's in international business. Uh, which was rare. In fact, I remember we were in Charlotte and the guy from NRN said, I don't think I've ever interviewed a, a driver with a college education, much less a master's. So uh, Sam, Sam was unique that way. And we, we did a great job doing the, 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 the marketing thing 101. That was really fun for us. We, we got along well. Sam and I are the exact same age. So, and I didn't take any crap off him, as you would say. So <laughs> it, it, was, it was respect both ways. It was good. So... And this is something for you, Leanne, which I always appreciated. Due to the lack of size of your team, Mm. the opportunities for you as one of the co-owners, as one of the, you know, senior leaders, these things sound big and flowery important as if you're part of some massive organization. I mean, you really didn't even have an org chart. Right. There was no need to draw one up. Right. I mean, I think you have to have more than, you know, 10 full time employees to even consider that a a good use of time. But, you know, a little bit of kidding aside of the many things that I appreciated about your your efforts back then, it was cool. So Leanne is very unique in this space. There are so few women that we just see, period, in a real strong managerial oversight, heavy decision-making role in IndyCar, whether it be CART or the IRL back then, you weren't just, hey, this is what it says on my job title, these two or three things. That's all I'm going to do. And I'll do them well, but hey, that's all. You were all in, whatever it was. Uh, You were all in, and that was, as I witnessed it and experienced it, was a big part of what you brought to the team, which was everything. I mean, look, you're not claiming that you're going to rebuild the engines, but whatever was needed to be done, there was nothing precious or nope, not going to get my, my hands dirty or my shirt dirty. I'm executive level. Tell us about that because that's a, a huge part of you yet again, being expressed through motor racing. You know, it was, um, in 1996, do you remember that uh, the the um, the windows start up started in fall of 1995, and in 1996, I'm in the speedway, and suddenly the pie guy is like, um, "You need to warm up your engine," and I was the only person in the team that actually had a computer and knew how to log on. Huh. <laughs> so I got a quick Windows lesson, and I became our first uh, data gal. And I was, it was my job to warm up the engine and, and, you know, get the computer up and going and then hand it over to the guys so that they could do. Um, so I always thought that was kind of interesting. But you're right. I, I did whatever was needed. The only thing I, if it, if it was going to be bolted on the car, it had to do with the car's performance, race strategy. That was over in Larry's domain and everything else was in mine. So everything from the FIA paperwork to all of the transportation, to all the uniforms, design, all the marketing, press kits, any kind of sponsorship we did, hospitality we did, um, 
you know, pretty much all of that was in my wheelhouse and I was a staff of one. I didn't have anybody else in my division. The org we chart said me. Yeah, you me. Know. <laughs> and, you know, and it was also payroll and, you know, invoicing and all that kind of stuff. Um, in fact, one day I figured out that um, Michael Andretti had six people doing all the jobs that I was doing. I thought, oh, maybe I should get some help. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's certainly scalable, obviously, because they were running, I think they were running two or three cars at the time. But I have to tell you, the thing that I think is interesting about that is that uh, Sam today has about six gals doing the job that I did. And I love the fact that uh, they're all gals. So um, it was a lot of fun. I was never bored um, and certainly exhausted. I mean, we pretty much had to work uh, seven days a week. Pretty much Christmas and Easter is what we took off because nobody else would work with us. Um, that's kind of how that went. And, um, you know, but it was, a, it was a hard job, but it was also a great job. Because on some level, having been at Sears Point, having been at Carroll, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, you wave goodbye to everybody and say, hope you had fun. In this job, I got to compete. I got to make a difference and I got to help choose the drivers that were in our seat as we rolled down the road and and find the talent. And I got good at that. And it was a lot of fun and it was just fun to compete and it was fun to be at the track. Although you walk into Phoenix and it was the day we were paddocking. As it turns out, I was the only girl there and they hadn't opened the women's restroom yet. So I had to, <laughs> I had to ask for the key to open up the women's restroom, hmm. which is part of the deal. But it was also fun. In fact, in Vegas one day, we were, um, we all went to dinner and we all have on our stuff because we just come right from the track. So we've got on our shirts and all the logos and everything. And, you know, the waitress came in and said, well, who are y'all? And our standard response was that we're a bowling team. And, uh, you know, she'd laugh a little bit, but then she looked at me and said, oh, well, you must be the secretary. <laughs> and all the guys kind of laughed a little bit. And, John Erie, and you know John, he was our tire guy. And he the late John Erie, yeah. Mm. John Erie, what a great guy. And he turned to the lady and said, no, ma'am, she's the boss lady. <laughs> and, and I thought at the time, I wondered if that waitress would go home and say, you know what? Mm, it may not be at the racetrack, but if she can be a boss lady, you know, why can't I? Um, in fact, that same weekend when we were at um, Vegas, I was giving a garage tour. And there was an elderly lady in the in the tour. She was about 80. But she had on tennis shoes and her jogging outfit and her little white hair. And she was keeping up. I was a little bit worried about her, but she was keeping up. And when we got back to the tent, the hospitality tent, she came over to me and she she grabbed my hands. And she literally had moist eyes and, and almost a tear in her eye. And she said, I am so proud to see a woman do what you just did. And it just warmed her heart. And it and those were the times when I d sometimes didn't quite recognize, again, that you're the only one doing something or you're the first of something or a pioneer of something and what that means to the people that are seeing you do it. And, you know, that's why you want to tell the stories of some of the gals that were first and the gals that my career, you know, the, sh the shoulders that I stand on um, matter, you know, when you get comments like that. And, and that was lovely. We're going to get to some of those pioneers who you uh, lavish a lot of a uh, lot of love on in just a moment. Let's move forward a little bit, Leanne, to '99 in the IRL. Uh, Neenhouse brothers come in and are involved. They bring 
the person some refer to as greasy old salad bar. We would hey. call Eliseo Salazar. Elio coming off. Uh, Elio. Eliseo. I wish it was Elio. Uh, Eliseo coming off <laughs> yeah, of a terrible <laughs> 98 season. Oh, broke yeah. himself, not just in half, but into uh, quarters. Massive crash. Came back in 99. Uh, it was his way of earning money, obviously, as a professional driver, but also brought fairly big sponsors with him. He needed to come back from a supporting himself uh, standpoint, but even he admitted, I came back way too soon. Wasn't a great year by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. But one thing that stood out to me that year, and this is falling into your area of expertise, is while the team was never going to do much that was particularly impressive with the driver who just was not physically or mentally ready to uh, get back to his best version. There was this really interesting introduction. I think it was at Dover maybe of FUBU as the sponsor <laughs> on the car. And of all the things that year, Crystal, uh, which had been uh, the spot, the main sponsor in the side pod, if I remember correctly, um, FUBU showed up and I had no, I mean, I had no idea it was coming, but granted, it's not like I was plugged into that side of things, but I remember showing up and seeing FUBU on the side of the car and going, holy crap. Uh, I mean, I knew exactly who and what they were, was fully versed in all of it and so on. But this was the first like real Mm. solid African-American based sponsor that i can recall coming into any form of indycar racing and i know that you were central to that so while the season didn't have much to offer competitively there was a really interesting milestone that happened and i know that you were a part of of that you share how that came together because for those who watch the show uh, what is it shark tank uh with damon john who's been one of the the judges there forever that was his company FUBU for us, by us, and on a freaking IRL car in 1999. I wasn't intimately devolved in, in, in quote, the, the doings of it, but when it showed up, it obviously was my job to execute. And for us, by us, and they wanted the Latin market. They wanted to expand their appeal into the Latin market, which is why they chose Aliseo. And the guys enjoyed being at the track, although... Watching Bob Neenhouse, who love Bob, but probably one of the whitest guys ever. Again, this is, I didn't do a good enough job of painting this picture because, yes, this was the truly whitest, you know, we're talking more country club golfing, that kind of thing than anything, you know, I think he had to properly. uh, get educations on what FUBU was uh, because I can guarantee he had no clue. But watching him wa- wear a FUBU jacket in pit lane. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see, that says it all, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they, they actually just, you know, they got a lot of blowback for it. Um, the um, community that supported that particular product uh, was not happy that they were in the sport. They got a lot of blowback for it. And they really didn't want to... Um, push that envelope. They didn't want to make any grand statements because I I told him, I said, look, 
if you're if you're going to do something with this, let's really do something with because the the greatest symbolism we have right now is the black and white checkers of the you know checkered flag. How integrated can it get? And um, they they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to push that envelope. So they didn't stick around for very long. Uh, but it was a it was an interesting experience having them there, and and they were great when they were there. So I think I might still have somewhere deep in storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, FUBU's version of Tim's of Timberlands they made and so those were I don't I think it might have been you who uh, distributed them to us in mm-hmm. the transporter uh, like they could be our new shoe or were meant to be our new footwear and uh, yeah again I just remember the looks on our all white team yeah. and there was just a lot of folks going uh uh sure. Uh, and these would have fit in perfectly in Brooklyn and a few other places on pit lane with a bunch of white guys or maybe not so much. So, I mean, I'm just, I was so tickled by it. Cause I'm like, it's amazing, but oh man, this is fun. This is going to be fun. You want to talk about, uh, I don't understand the fit and I'm not sure FUBU will as well. Once I get a look into what they're a part of. So, uh, but nonetheless, you made it happen. Well, and it's it, again, it was going after the Latino market. The interesting thing about that season is that we became a Firestone test team that season. Yes. And uh, LSAO could put together 11 or 12 perfect laps at the exact same time. I mean, you were the data guy. You knew it. He could just clock them off identical. So he was a great tire tester. But in the first tire test, we were having a conversation about his career. And he happened to mention to me it was his 25th year in racing. So uh, we surprised him. I went and did a, we did a logo. My graphics guy, Alex, who's fantastic. We did a 25th anniversary logo for Aliseo. And we got Cristal involved, which is the Budweiser of Chile, for those of you who don't know. That's been their main sponsor. And they got involved and Firestone got involved. And in Vegas, we had created this Starfire Crystal Trophy that had 25 stars on it. Cristal CEO flew in. Everybody flew in, and we did a presentation in front of the Vegas race where he had won before to celebrate his 25 years in racing. And uh, it was funny because I also brought in all these black and white photos, and one of them is his first win. And he's got really skin-tight jeans on and this open shirt with all this, you know, medallion hanging around his chest. I mean, he looked like Rico Suave. It was his very first win, and we brought in all those, but we totally surprised him with that. And uh, that was nice. In fact, they ended up flying that trophy, FedExing it, mind you, um, back to Chile, and the Ministry of Sports made it Aliseo Day and honored him as well because, you know, he had done a lot. In fact, he told me when he was in the hospital, the reason why he came back was because of all the letters from all the children that said, you're my hero. You're who I look up to. How do I get to be you? He, he was inundated with them. And wow. that's why he got back in the car. So, so that was a lot of fun for Aliseo. And, and it was fun to surprise him that way. Love to fast forward to 2001, Leanne, before mm. getting into some of your heroes. First season inaugural Sam Schmidt Motorsports team. Uh, this is the, the LP infrastructure behind it. So this was you and Larry running the organization for Sam's first year, uh, 2001. Here we are, 2021. So a little bit of a milestone there for Sam and his team and how far they have come today as Aero McLaren SP. But tell us about this fairly interesting dynamic where 
you're running something. It's certainly not uh, under your name. I know the Neenhaus Racing was was a similar capacity, but mm-hmm. this 2001 uh, embarking upon a new career for Sam as well as a team owner after uh, his big crash, uh, paralysis and such, being the businessman that he was, Sam wanted to continue in the sport wasn't ready to buy everything, hire everyone, wasn't ready to establish his own outfit yet and look to you and Larry to create that for him. Tell me about that because of the many things I would imagine you could be proud of for talking legacy. You look at McLaren being involved. You look at Pato Ward, one of the great young talents in the sport Felix Rosenquist Juan Montoya is going to drive for them at Indianapolis this year the roots of what we have today were planted by you and Larry so of course Sam was injured in Orlando at a warm-up and um, I got the call I I wasn't at the warm-up Larry was and Marv called me about four hours after the crash and said uh, He's going to be a quadriplegic, and I need answers now. And so I started dialing for information. You know, the Christopher Reeves Foundation, other hospitals. I mean, my job was to get more of information in as much as possible and as fast as possible. And we got after it. Um, And then as he healed, he was in the hospital. He, He made his choice and stuff. But we were actually one of the first to go see him for the first time when he could actually stand up and not pass out. You know, they'd sit him up and he wouldn't pass out. He was finally off the the breathing tube and whatnot. And we went to see him and I don't remember why, but Larry left the room. It was just Sam and I. And again, we're the same age and we we relate on a lot of different levels. And he he basically looked at me and said, you know, I, I want to keep going, but I, I don't know how to do that. And I said, well, you could be a driver coach, but let's face it, you weren't that great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he laughed a bit. And I said, we could do the marketing thing, but I, I knew that he had the means. And I said, you need to be an owner. You can do this. And we can do it the exact same way that we ran you before, but let's put your name on the door. And he said, but you know what? I've already seen people here that we can make a difference for. I mean, Sam and I always had the good cause marketing thing, right? And he said, I've already seen that. I've seen people that are in their wheelchair now, run out of insurance, and then are suddenly condemned to the wheelchair for the rest of their life. He said, we need to fix that. We, we can do things. I'm like, well, we'll do the Sam Schmidt Paralysis Foundation. And, you know, we needed to, you know, make that work. And, you know, he had a lot to think about and it took some time. And we, we got a phone call 21 days in front of the first opening day of the, the season. This seemed to be our mo- mojo. So we had 21 days to build that whole effort. And we put it together. This time, we actually did have an 18-wheeler, not rider trucks. And we made it to Phoenix. And the Speedway, the sanctioning body wanted us to have uh, Davey Hamilton because he was the Iron Man, and that was the they were going to help Sam out that way. So that's who we got. And the first time we met Davey was at the very first practice session in Phoenix, the very first day. Um, and our job there was to help Sam figure out how to engage because he's now going through all the emotion, right? the grief, the anger that you go through when you're suddenly looking at your fingers and they haven't moved and they're never, ever going to move. And we had things to figure out. Um, 
how to engage him. So we figured out how to rig up the headset so that he could talk to the driver in the pit lane by, you know, moving his head like he did with his wheelchair. And we had to figure out, you know, how to accommodate his needs on the road. A handicap thing, and then it moved to an RV. We had to figure out... um, we had to figure out from the foundation side who we were going to help. And, and we've had every known contraption known to man at the track. One arm, no arms, no legs, power, manual, the whole bit. And we inspired some of those people to, you know, life is not over. This was important for Sam. We had uh, vets from the Richmond Hospital come out. In fact, when we took them from hospitality to the paddock, they lined up a big train between power and manual chairs. And they made a big train going over to the paddock area. It was great. Um, but there were things that we just had to figure out and help him learn to do, not to mention he had to maintain his um, regimen of physical therapy. He had to do 40 hours of exercise a week in the midst of all of this. So it was helping him learn to to manage. It was helping the emotional hit because we knew we were going to take that, and we did. Um, we were the We were the safe zone to yell at, and it was okay, and we knew that that was part of our job in helping him make this transition. Um, It was a tough year, although it certainly had its high points. Um, Sam always maintained a sense of humor all the way through it. I mean, his physical therapy people were helping him on his legs one day, and at the right moment, he emphasized, he went, ow! (laughs) And they freaked out. (laughs) And then recognized he he couldn't feel it, right? Um, you know, and, and even Sheila maintained a sense of humor all the time, too. We were all in the, the hotel room at one point, and they brought McDonald's in. He's like, honey, those fries are looking pretty good. And she's like, well, help yourself, honey. <laughs> so we kept giving him, we, we tried to maintain the same kind of normal relationship that we'd had before, joking around, trying to, to make it as normal as possible. And we, we did a, a lot from a press standpoint and that the story was such a great story. We ended up on the cover of every newspaper or above the fold in the sports section everywhere we went. And Sam had to do all that. Sam had to put himself out there that way. And then it was finding the right chair. Um, and then he started to paint uh, with a brush in his mouth because he wanted to help his signature. Interestingly enough, Sam's signature, his autograph, is the exact same now as it was when he was able to write with a hand. Wow. There's no change. You can't tell the difference between them. Of course, the girls that wanted their breasts signed were equally thrilling for Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Sharpie in the mouth. Let's go, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it was a really interesting year. We did lay the foundation for a lot of things. Um, and it was interesting to watch Sam uh, go through to go through what he did. Um, you know, certainly there's a lot of emotion, a lot of anger for a reason. And I, I can tell you that I went to see Sam about three years ago at Road America and we were talking and he made the comment, we were just talking about the journey that he's been on. And he said, you know, I really understand that I have done more for people in this chair than I ever would have done in that cockpit. Mm. And we said in the cockpit together because... And it's so it's interesting to watch your friend go from being this really, you know, robust driver that's just full of himself and and full of energy and all this stuff, to going into this mode where clearly there's anger and hurt and yet passion still to do good to the man he's now become and the lives that he has touched and the fact that his heart is full in doing so. 
And that's an amazing journey to watch somebody go on. And just to play little tiny cog in that wheel was, was a privilege, to be honest with you. I want to touch on one other thing from 2001, Leanne, which thought it was another demonstration of the heart and warmth and everything that's infused within you and Larry as well. That was Davy Hamilton's crash. So we're at, again, you wouldn't call it an anniversary, but we are you know, 20 years out from that stomach-churning crash at Texas. Yeah. And having been one of, uh, I don't remember who else volunteered, but uh, when they brought the car back to uh, the paddock in the middle of the race, um, someone asked, uh, you know, who wants to volunteer to go clean it up? And the, the request wasn't, oh, it's dirty. It's the cars just showered with Cover. blood yeah. and won't go into any gory details here, but, uh, pretty much everything from the ankles down on Davy was pulverized. Uh, there's a lot more trauma done to his legs than that. But I mean, this is someone who went from being the iron man of, in, of the IRL, uh, and you know, had compete completed every race. And there was this great arc about Davy's career. And all of a sudden it was very clear that Davy's life and world like Sam's after his crash, this was never going to be the same. Davy wasn't paralyzed, fortunately, but just the raw damage meant that his year was over at least, if not longer. The team was thrown into, I guess you could say turmoil from the sense of the car primary chassis is completely destroyed. I know that the team was not heavily funded, so there was the need all of a sudden to put a brand new car together, find drivers for Sam, first year team owner. Again, you talk about going through the wars and having an appreciation for how tough things can be. Share some insights, Leanne, on what it was like for you and Larry as the folks running the team of what it was like dealing with this catastrophic accident for Davey and also then saying, boy, it's almost like we have to start a new season and we don't exactly know where we're going to go. Um, that was the season of driver du jour is what it turned out to be. Um, Davey was injured. Um, I remember driving his family and friends to the hospital because family never, ever, we don't let family drive to the hospital in certain stances like that. And, you know, it's interesting when you get to the hospital, you can, you can tell the racers. You know, that they're not asking why did this happen or things like that. They just start doing. Because now, you know, you're a team that wants to, you have a driver that's injured. And it was the racing community that before Davey made it back to Indy, which, I don't know, a couple of days later, they had organized childcare. They had organized a place for his wife to stay because they weren't living in Indy. They had organized meals to be brought. They had organized a van for him to use for a wheelchair. The, the community had come around and provided all this amazing support. And, and that, frankly, allowed us to do what we needed to do because we needed to keep the team going. The driver of choice there um, 
for at the time I was arguing for Jacques Lazier because he was had just put on the show in Kentucky. He was absolutely hungry. He was ready to go, and he was under contract for the next race. So we had one race to 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 put a seat in, and then we got Jacques at Richmond, and we sat on the pole with Richmond uh, with Jacques, and uh, which was phenomenal. So we went kind of from feast to famine kind of thing, and. You know, having all that emotion of of watching David recover to being able to celebrate the fact that this small team just sat on the pole. And a uh, little note there, we were an Ilmore engine. In fact, I remember the day the first Ilmore showed up. You took pictures of it. Oh, yeah. It was pretty. It was gorgeous. Um, but we know that we had uh, ho- less horsepower than Penske and Kelly that were using those Ilmores as well. And even though Richmond's a setup track, I get it. But, you know, to sit on the pole that day was phenomenal. Um, unfortunately, we we bumped Sarah Fisher off the pole, which would have been the first gal on the pole, but she managed to get there anyway down the road. And so we had these incredible experiences with Jacques. In fact, we ended up finishing P3. And and then next thing you know, John Menard hired Jacques away. <laughs> we're like, I'm still pissed about that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sitting down at the dinner table and Leah goes, oh, by the way, this happened today. And I'm thinking, news deadline, you know, what the hell? So... Um, I, neither, none of us ever blame Jacques. I mean, John Menard cars, largest budget, largest team. You're going to go. That's what you're going to do. And we had done our job. We were a small team that helped a driver move forward in the sport. But dang it, we were getting ready to go to St. Louis where we had tested. And now we have to replace a driver again. We ended up with Alex Barron there. It was his first time coming over from cart to IRL. He crashed in pit road. He left the scene so fast that ABC couldn't even find him. I couldn't find him. He was gone. <laughs> okay. And uh, see, from there, I think we ended up with uh, Anthony Lazaro, who wanted to go over 200 miles an hour for the first time. And in the first practice session, he popped it, and there we were, sitting over 200 miles an hour. And he did a great job. But we had to bop around from drivers that season, which, you know, added to the chaos. Uh, there's that, And that was certainly tough. But... Again, it made for a fascinating and interesting season. So we were um, a media darling, to say the least. Had Richie Hearn in there. We, we did. had uh, Sam Schmidt, uh, what, foundation.org, I think, on the side pods. We had uh, VH1, which I'm st- oh, not, gosh, still not sure how that, that happened. <laughs> we had, uh, what was it, John Mellencamp and his wife were on pit lane filming some sort of something for a video for his latest song uh, while walking around the car or whatever. It was, yeah, it was about 19 seasons rolled into one. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, I mean, again, there was so much media attention and we were trying to leverage all of that and all these different drivers and all these different personalities. And of course, Sam was going through so much and his family was going through so much and we were trying to accomplish so much. Yeah, you're right. Between all of the different drivers, all the foundation work, we had our hands full. But it was also an amazing season, and uh, we did a lot of good. You know, we did a lot of good. We had a a jerk of a crew chief as well, and I'd just gotten tired of his constant uh, harping at me. Uh, And so I think it was at that uh, St. Louis, that gateway test, where I just said, look, you and me are going over here into this little room and I'm going to close the door and one of us is going to walk out because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm done. And so did just that. 
uh, roll down. It was actually roll down. It was a roll up door, rolled that thing down, closed it. So truly there was no one else there. And, uh, it was, we were just about to start, uh, throwing bows and, uh, our truck driver, um, uh, I forget <laughs> his name, but burly man, ex-military man, um, walked, rolled the door up, walked in, separated us and said, this is not happening today. Uh, unless you want me to drop the two of you. And I don't know if our relationship ever really got any better, but yeah, uh, tensions got to be somewhat high at the time. And that was shortly after Texas. So it was a lot of nonsense going on. I think I also had some sort of massive, um, tooth problem and, uh, you were kind enough to find, uh, not only a dentist, but then some form of medication that I needed. I don't know if it was antibiotics or what, but just one of those things where I think back on that season, Leanne, and among, <laughs> like I said, 19 seasons and one, there were so many little subplots to whatever was happening. And yet, again, typical you, never lost any grace, never lost any anything, <laughs> and, you know, took care of the idiots uh, in your charge. So, anyways, I have a lot of fond memories of that if year. If it makes you feel any better on that particular uh, person, he was the only person out of all my years of racing that ever lost his pants he just he, his pants didn't show back up for cleaning and he looked at me like where are my pants and I, I so I finally just sent back what he'd give me which was like one pair of shorts so he went into a four-day weekend with like one pair of shorts one day and I'm like hey dude I've never lost a pair of pants wow <laughs> good luck with that <laughs> <laughs> the things you remember that's amazing <laughs> well let's uh let's do this Leanne so Full admission here, and this is just admission of my adding to my great legacy of being an idiot. Must have been three years ago, maybe four. You'd said, hey, I've done a lot of research and I've written a beautiful thing, got photos and you name it. This woman, Nita Milliken, she is the bee's knees. She's everything. And she's not the only woman who's worked in IndyCar before me that inspired me, but I have a great affinity for Anita. And I don't know if you know about her, Marshall, but here's a USB stick with more than you could ever ask for. If you want to write something about her, do a feature about her. And again, being an idiot, uh, did not turn that into some sort of body of work or series or feature, whatever it was. And very recently have seen here, the IndyCar series reached out to her. I know that you were uh, someone suggesting that would be a very good thing. Just reminded me that while I failed in my mission a few years ago, still have the material though. So I'm not saying it's not, it'll never happen, but I just thought it'd be wonderful for you to share some deep, deep insights on the, some of the women, because we spend all day talking if we went through all the women, but some of the women like Anita, who just serve as that engine inside of you, propelling you forward uh, and what makes some of them special to you. So I'd love for you to just regale us. Uh, again, when I, when I started in the sport, um, I wasn't quite aware of the fact that women had not been allowed in the garage area until about eight years before I started. And I, I mean to tell you that the, the 
the flyer and the, the rules for the pits at the short tracks and IndyCar alike, pit rule number one was no women allowed. It's just where it was. You couldn't walk in there to hand somebody a passenger set of keys or to give them a sandwich. It was absolutely no women allowed. And it was that way in IndyCar. It was that way in NASCAR. NHRA, nope, happy to have the gals along. SCCA as well, but not in those two garages. And I wasn't completely aware of that because, again, it just, it had been so new. I just knew there weren't a lot of us. And then I start meeting these gals at Indy, and I start hearing their stories. And I meet Anita, and I I start finding that, you know, holy crap. <laughs> when Anita decided to, decided to, when when she first walked into that garage area and was first credentialed, um, it really still wasn't easy. There were men that were yelling at her. You know, where'd you steal that shirt from? Windshields got broken in the parking lot while she was in there. Jeez. She was called a lot of bad names. Um, even some of the women weren't supportive. You know, why do you need to be in your husband's workplace? I don't go to my husband's office. Um, you know, things like that. It was tough. And yet... She kind of kept her head down and, and and got after it. And so I was talking to Donald Davidson one day, and we were talking about, you know, Nita kind of being the first to go over the wall. He didn't even know it because she wore a bell of calava, and she kept her head down. So when I, when I start, you know, getting to know Anita, and gosh, darn it, she just became like a huge mentor and sister to me because she had been through a lot of the things that I was already going through. And having that ear and having that voice of experience was just really, really great. Um, but you find that um, she started way back when with Howard, and they were, he taught her how to fabricate, and she became a hell of a fabricator. And all the work that they did, everybody I've talked to said, nope, she was 50% of that job. She wasn't on the couch just eating bonbons. <laughs> you know, she was in the shop every single hour that Howard was. And they did so many cool things, like they cut an IndyCar in half and attached it to a barn wall. That technically was the first time anybody had put an IndyCar on a flow bench. Anita was the one taking all the measurements of all the string of all the wind. Um, and that it changed the leading edge of wings for forever. I mean, it was never the same again. They then went on to Gallus, and it was the Gallus R&D group. And Jeff Ryan was there. He was doing the first two-way shock and the first three-way shock. And he said, hey, we need to dyno these things. And they built the first shock dynos. And it was funny because Jeff Brabham came in and said, well, that's only half the story. And Howard just laughed because then he put a really heavy, huge spring on it. And they built it with enough horsepower to deal with the spring as well. (laughs) It's like, ta-da, and got the good. But it was Anita that wrote the computer program that gave us the first visuals of what a shock looks like on the computer screen so that we knew that they had individual personalities. You knew that one shock would be better on one corner as opposed to the other. And that's where Shock Mojo kind of started. And they were very open with that technology. If somebody wanted to know about it, somebody wanted to talk about it, they would be very open with it. And and she did that work right alongside with Howard. And her stories just continued to be every time there was an opportunity to go do, it was with Howard. And she'll tell you that Howard held the door open for her. But I'll tell you, she also had to walk through that door. She had to walk through that door. She didn't have to do that. Um, and she was a formidable formidable crew person, a formidable fabricator, and she went over the wall as a vent man. And this is in an era when there was no pit speed limit, there were no helmets, just a bell of calava. So guys are coming in at 160 miles an hour, all out of shape. And her job as a vent man, as you, as you know, 
is controlling that whole pit stop because the minute she releases that driver, he's gone. So she has to have a cool head to actually make sure all the four tires and corners are all changed, everybody's set, that traffic coming down pit road is clear before she releases that driver. And of course, she's doing all that in nanoseconds. So when it came time to send person over the wall, Howard's like, well, you're the only one I trust. So we sent Anita. She was 95 pounds, and it was the machinist union car. And the machinist union wanted to actually make her the new Rosie the Riveter. At which point she said, nope, because I'm a part of a team. She says, you know, Roger Pinsky says there's no I in team, and, and, and you can't isolate one member because it'll, it'll break up the team. So she actually refused to allow them to actually showcase her or make an example of her because she was part of a team. So, and I know you respect, that's one of the many touch points about Anita that just uh, you love so much that, yes, she was a foreign creature in that environment, mm-hmm. and yet she rejected, and I'm not saying that she wouldn't do interviews, and, you know, there were many, many, right. wherever she went, seemingly there was a, uh, a newspaper article about, you know, the, the lady in pit lane or whatever, you know, <laughs> pick whatever bad take from, you know, 30, 40 years ago was written, but she, while she was would not shy away from uh, speaking about what she did, it was never in isolation, it was never... Why, yes, please cast the spotlight on me. And I know that that resonated with you heavily. Absolutely, because at the end of the day, she was a racer. And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the women that that I met in this very small sorority that we had of the women that actually worked in the garage. Um, you know, Linda Connie, Vicki O'Connor, Eloisa Garza, incredible. She did all the carbon work on the Chaparral car that, you know, Johnny Rutherford's winning 500 car. She was really the first to, to do some of those things and to make that technology possible. And all of these women, frankly, myself included, and, you know, Kate Goodlock and, and, and all these girls that are still kind of doing it today, we're not there to prove that women can do the job. We're there because we want to be there. We, we love the sport. We want to compete. We want to give our best. And, you know, I, I've been asked before, I'm like, well, why is it important to showcase a women crew member? Other crew members don't get showcased. And I'm like, you know, I understand that. But at this particular juncture, it's that, you know, the new campaign that's out, see her, be her. That's a true statement. And you have to remember the starting point here. And when Anita first started, Pit rule number one, again, no women allowed. Men were furious that she was in, she got caught fabricating when Howard wasn't around. Um, they put together this really cool Bluebird bus. It was a machine bus because, you know, back then there, weren't, there wasn't a Delara part bag you could order. And it was an entire bus filled out with machining equipment that drove from track to track to track. And she got to sit out in the bus. She built, the, she helped build the car back in the garage, but she got to sit in the bus. She didn't get to go in the garage and actually race. And slowly but surely, men would come out and they'd look at her kind of suspiciously. And then they would slowly but surely figure out that she could actually do the machine work too. But she got to stay out in the parking lot and machine parts in a bus. That was it. And you just kind of think, knowing the, the, the bad names, the difficult calls, the inability to go do what you love to do just because of your gender, you know, come on. And so at some point, you tell the story because you want 
this next generation to know it it was a hard fight. And you want people to go, oh, I didn't realize. And in, in a lot of cases, most men didn't realize. I mean, there was a journalist in New Jersey had to take a, a pregnancy test to prove she wasn't pregnant before she could get on pit road to get her credential. I mean, <laughs> what the heck, right? And so the nonsense, and, and again, a lot of people just didn't, didn't really understand that. Um, and so making a point to, to tell those stories is actually important because at the end of the day, what happens is this next generation, we had a crew guy on the Ballardi effort, and he had two daughters that were running the go-karts. They were driving, but they were also doing the wrenching. And they came to the dad very sheepishly and said, Dad, we, we don't really, really drive anymore, but we didn't want to tell you that because we didn't want to stop wrenching. And he's like, oh, no, absolutely, you can turn wrenches. Well, 20 years ago, a dad wouldn't have said that. And a dad will say that now because there's been Anita, because there's been an Eloisa, because there's been, you know, others of us that have been just in the garage area making an appearance and doing the job. And it just makes it possible for others to see the possibilities. And that's important. Amen. That's important. Sister Patterson. Um, (laughs) Why don't we close on what you are doing right now, which is immensely fascinating. And Mm. yet again, I think plays to all of your skills. When you were telling me about your involvement in the Indy autonomous challenge, using these, uh, Delara Indy lights cars as the basis of true, you know, AI, uh, inspired performance, with these vehicles, this contest that's coming up, you getting involved uh, on the university level, um, I just thought, wow, here's someone who can, whether it's from the data uh, engineering side to the marketing to the this to the that, this seems like yet another Leanne-type scenario (laughs) where you get to be wearing 47 hats and loving all of them and enriching the program why don't we close on this? And, and for those who might not know about it, maybe you can give a little bit of a, a deeper background than what I did. But tell me about this and your involvement because, wow, this is not for dummies. <laughs> no, racing, not for dummies. It never is. Um, uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and a couple other corporations have got together. They are hosting the Indy Autonomous Challenge at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, the whole challenge here is there's a million-dollar prize money, and it's for the first collegiate team that can take the Delara Indy Lights car, which has been outfitted as an autonomous car, and complete 20 laps around the track in head-to-head competition at race pace. So you're talking about looking at, we think, think at the end of the day, there'll be about 12 teams. We started with 30. They're now 18. Uh, Some of the teams haven't made through rounds of competitions, and there are rounds. Um, The first one was like white paper. The second one was getting a passenger vehicle going. The third one of these simulated races where teams literally from around the world, there's nine globally, there's another nine here in the United States out of the remaining 18, and they're running heat races simulated on computers. Um, So we now know kind of who's where, and Auburn right now is in the top three, I'm proud to say. Again, War Eagle. And they're going to run this head-to-head competition at pace. And I think it's really interesting because you've got a group of kids that are coders. 
And the object of this is not, and I repeat, not to create a driverless racing series. That's not what this is about. This is about taking autonomous technology and moving it forward. Sure, there's autonomous cars that have gone faster, but let's face it, we're basically at 35 miles an hour and we still can't turn left in front of people. And taxis, robo-autonomous taxis are starting to come out and there's different levels of autonomous driving, but this is about putting a bunch of bright young minds to an old problem and trying to push those boundaries forward. So they're trying to keep the cars as equal as possible and set up, no modifications, all that kind of stuff, and leave it all down to the software. So this is about software. And it's really, really interesting. Clemson University is actually doing all the um, hardware, so all the sensors, the LIDAR sensors, the GPS satellite sensors, the radars, all those kind of things are being stacked in. And then teams get to use those services and systems in whichever configuration they can to make that car go fast. But what's interesting is these kids don't know anything about racing. They honestly don't. Um, The Formula SAE guys know more about the shocks than the guys that are coding. And that's interesting to me because you and I both know that an Indy Lights chassis at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is a very sophisticated piece of equipment and that we make adjustments in millimeters And if the sun comes out, the setup changes. So the question is, so is the car going to know it's got to push? Is the car going to know what the exit of the draft feels like? I mean, if you can program a car to, you know, think like Rick Mears or, you know, Marco Andretti, well, then you've probably done some good in the world (laughs) because you've made a system that's going to think faster and perform better and stay out of trouble. And, And therein lies what they're trying to do. So... all the teams will be at the Indy 500 this year, and that's where they're going to actually pick up their cars. The qualifying teams will pick up the Delara car. They'll go into those, I'm assuming, the Formula old Formula 1 garages inside Turn 1. So the fans should be able to see these cars on the Indy 500 weekend. And then the very first week following will be the very first on-track test where autonomous cars are going to go around. They'll do another test in September, and then in October, they'll actually be the race. And they'll have to qualify on a qualifying weekend, and then they'll have a actual race as well. So the Speedway's behind it. They're going to be full supportive of it because this is what the Speedway was designed to do. It is a test track. It's the greatest test track. And and racing and developing innovation have gone together hand in hand like peanut butter and jelly for centuries. And that's what this is about. So it's, it's well, it's kind of cool to be a part of. And the kids are so wicked smart. Kids, quarter in the swear jar, Students, <laughs> the students, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, you know, they're mostly grad students, um, but they're just so wicked smart and they're so excited about it. I'm like, I'm talking to our team leader uh, and I'm like, so how fast do you think we're going to go? Of course, he gives me the engineering definition that has to do with, you know, horsepower and torque. I'm like, no, no, no. If the car's going to ping out at 185, how fast are we going? He goes, oh, we're going 185. I'm like, Okay. That's how confident they are, and um, it'll be fun to see. They are going to um, put a capsule over the cockpits because it would be really freaking weird to see open cockpit Indy Lights cars with no driver in them, you know, go around the speedway. So they're going to close that over, and uh, in true engineering fashion, the rule book says no animals are allowed on board. Thank goodness. You can't put a bunny ramen in it. You can't put a ramen in it. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness yeah 
So only that would be in the rule book. So. Yes. So tell me about your opportunity here, Lee. And alma mater is amazing, but tell me about yeah. what you've been able to do to uh, be part of this. What are you able to bring to this program? Um, and hopefully folks can uh, follow along here soon. Um, part of my job is just to eliminate all the hurdles um, of what it is to run at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway so that our team, and we're one of the smaller teams, although I will say we're the one of the most diverse. We have a higher percentage of women on our team than any other. Um, so that they can just focus on what they do best, and that's deal with the software. So uh, my job is to to do everything I can to make sure the car is doing what it needs to do by bringing in the people that need to be brought in. Um, and then from a alumni standpoint, we obviously need to raise the funds to go do this, right? Um, Delara has given us a very generous uh, price point of $300,000 for an Indy Lights car. And you and I both know that that's originally a $750,000 deal. And as a roller, it's a million. So they're doing that. And, and Auburn's already committed to do that. But having the funding to kind of do the testing that you want is important. Um, and what's interesting is after all this is over, Auburn will actually own that Indy Lights car like all the other teams. They're going to keep it. And so a company that wants to test a sensor, test a, you know, piece of software can actually probably lease that car. And then we can either take it to, we have a track down here at Auburn, but, or Barber, who's our, in our right in our backyard, uh, for a road course capability, can actually test their software using that, that car. Um, so it's an, a really interesting ongoing opportunity for further research um, and to allow companies to continue to use this technology to move it forward. So that's part of what I'm bringing to the table is that uh, perspective. And then again, just helping people leverage the situation because at the end of the day, the branding opportunity here kicks off with the Indy 500. And you and I both know the pole sitter gets more branding than the winner of the Indy 500 because you get to talk about him for a whole week. So <laughs> having, our, having our bells and whistles all ready to go at the Indy 500 will you know, allow us to to be present for the media and the press as we go through the next six months of storytelling here. So that's part of the fun that I get to go do. So happy for you, Leanne. It sounds like a perfect, perfect fit. Well, there's lots more for us to discuss. So why don't we save that for a future part two, but at least <laughs> for this part one, so appreciative of you. So thankful to have had, two opportunities to uh, work for you back in the day in IndyCar. And just, I hope, if nothing else, uh, some of the women who are getting their start in motor racing or have maybe been there for a few years and maybe have heard your name or maybe haven't, but nonetheless, I'm hoping that uh, you, knowing how much pride and effort you have invested in everything you've done to represent and to reached back and bring more women along into the sport, hoping uh, some reach out and more get to know you and appreciate and say, hey, that's someone I should consider getting to know, if not just modeling uh, what I do after her and some of the other women who've played massive roles, uh, kicking that door down and saying, nope, this is mine. I belong here, <laughs> not because of you, but because of me. So... Thanks for taking some time, pal. Well, you're beyond kind with your words, uh, Marshall. I'm just absolutely uh, blushing. It was just an opportunity that I was graced with. And 
it's been a fantastic ride and I've been thrilled with every part of it. So it's been fun. I look forward to it continuing in, in other ways too. So it's going to be good. Thanks once again to Leanne for making some time and letting all of us get to know her a little bit more. Just truly a dear friend and someone who contributed a lot to the sport. And I hope as more of you get a chance to see her in whatever arena at upcoming races this year, you see her, stop by and say hello. You will not be disappointed. Just a truly warm, bright, enthusiastic, and highly talented person. Also thankful to uh, know her and to have been influenced by her. So this is our little Marshall Pro podcast. If you haven't listened to it before, we have more than a thousand episodes waiting for your perusal at marshallpruittpodcast.com plus the various ways you might subscribe to this little audio experiment of mine. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks once more to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com.